There are traditions and cultural norms that are passed down from generation to generation. We often call it their legacy. The definition of a legacy according to Britannica is something that happened in the past or that comes from someone in the past. Well, the word legacy, we use it very often to acknowledge ways of life, traditions, and those significant things that people did that are carried on and honored by people that are living today. I always use legacy to acknowledge those long-standing things that have impacted us or influenced us, either the events, the actions, or traditions that are passed down from generation to generation. Those things that really help define a culture and define a people. And what is culture, you may ask? I've always loved the definition that my professor of international studies used, and his name, Dr. Milton Bennett, always said that culture is the learned and shared values beliefs and behaviors of a community or group of interacting people. So that includes everything. Culture includes the language, the food, dress, music, art, literature, and the group's customs and their beliefs and attitudes and the values that they place on each of them. Culture and traditions can be passed down as a legacy and not only from generation to generation, but also from country to country. And on today's podcast, I feature the sweetgrass baskets from West Africa to South Carolina. I tell their story. It's quarter miles travel where the adventure begins when you reach into your pocket. There's a story behind every quarter design, a story that can take you on an adventure of your own from one of a kind landmarks to hometown heroes. Start your journey with Anita one quarter mile at a time. Life is meant to be. This is the story of a basket, a little basket, or they are also sometimes very big baskets. But we may not always think of something like a basket as having such a strong legacy, one that binds cultures, that binds the struggles, the triumphs, the traditions in both work as well as in art. There's a simplicity of beauty that reaches far beyond the beautiful basket structures and the craft itself to the people who have sustained some of the hardest conditions placed on men and women to be enslaved, to be taken from their homeland, their country, their family and friends. But yet, what cannot be taken from them was a tradition that has lived on from generation to generation, passed from family member to family member, and the sweetgrass basket can be found in the highest of places, acclaimed museums around the country and around the world, to the White House. That little sweet grass basket coming all the way from West Africa now holds such a strong legacy right here in the United States in South Carolina. On the reverse or the tail side of the South Carolina State Quarter released in 2000, you'll find the design of the South Carolina State, or it's also called the Palmetto State. In the design, you'll find three symbols, the Palmetto tree, the Carolina wren, which is their state bird, and the yellow jasmine. 
But it is the story of the Palmetto tree that we will share on this episode. The Palmetto State, as it is known, is because there is an abundance of Palmetto trees in South Carolina. And when I say abundance, they're all around. And it is that tree that has an important part in the tradition of sweetgrass baskets. But let me start at the beginning because the baskets are not called palmetto baskets. They're called sweetgrass baskets. I had a long and educational conversation with Corey Austin, who is a speaker, a Gullah cultural representative, and a sweetgrass basket weaver. He shares more in-depth information about the history of sweetgrass baskets and the tradition and legacy of these baskets and the Gullah people in South Carolina. I start my conversation by asking him to tell me what exactly is sweetgrass? So sweetgrass is mostly known nationally as a Native American grass that was burned for different rituals, uh, very similar to burning sage. Um, and so when you when you speak to someone Midwest to West Coast and you speak sweetgrass, if they're not from the from the Carolinas and they don't know the coast that well, they're going to immediately think of that sweetgrass that Native Americans have used for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, that's not our sweetgrass. And so the similarity is the name and only the name. Uh, Native American sweetgrass uh, smells sweet, tastes sweet. Uh, they braid it and burn it for different rituals. Um, grows in the winter months around the northern states of uh, uh, Montana and Oregon and North Dakota. Gullah sweetgrass is going to be a coastal material. Um, it does not taste sweet. Um, it is not braided. Um, it does not grow around snow. It grows around the intercoastal. It's a saltwater marsh grass that we harvest uh, only in summer months between the months of, uh, well, we did the holidays, between the holidays of uh, Memorial weekend and Labor Day weekend would be the time of harvesting. Uh, within our culture, sweetgrass was a similar grass that was found as the enslaved were brought into the coast of Carolina of that time of enslavement. They were using these uh, tools on the West Coast of Africa for different agricultural purposes and as an enslaved African was brought into to the, to the coast of Carolina, he and she were required to still keep up a lot of the trades and traditions that made Africa so great. It was also what was used um, to make uh, the first part of America uh, very, very uh, functional and, and, and profitable as they made different style baskets. Um, sweetgrass uh, as a whole is just a similar material that was found on, on our coast, but it's not really I always like to make sure it's understood that it's not really the most significant thing of the culture. Um, it's not really the grass at all. It's really the people. And so that Gullah community that has kept this art form alive generationally, you know, dating back a thousand years before American enslavement on the, uh, on the West Coast of Africa, it's the people that are unique. It's not really just the material. The material is a similar grass that the enslaved found as they were brought into uh, to America of that time. They found similar materials. You can also still find similar materials uh, in other parts of, of our world as well. Uh, very similar to a place that I find very fond. I wanna visit one day uh, in Peru, uh, the lake of uh, Lake Titicaca. And so that's a similar grass to sweetgrass. It's not sweetgrass. So there's also another one called golden grass. That's a similar grass to sweetgrass. And it's not what makes the grasses 
unique. It's not, it's that, it's not the grasses at all. It's the culture, it's the people, it's the heritage, um, just by using a similar substance that was very uh, close to what was used on the West Coast of Africa. So today, do you uh, find it in uh, like the marsh areas and things like that, places like that is where you harvest it? Correct. So if you can visualize the coast of Carolina, uh, let's go, let's start around, let's say Little River. Little River, South Carolina, you'll find sweetgrass. And so you need warm climate and you need salt water. Um, anything north of Little River, you know, you may be able to find a little bit around the Wilmington, Jacksonville, North Carolina areas, but you don't really want it to be in a real cold climate. It doesn't, you just don't find it there that well. Um, so what are you finding it from, from the coast of Carolina all the way down to the bottom uh, around, around the Everglades, you can find sweet grass. Wow. All the way down below Miami, uh, around Key West, um, you can find sweet grass coming back up the panhandle of Florida and the bayou. You can find it in the Louisiana, Alabama bayou. You know, you need warm climate and salt water. And that's what you have to uh, have to find the material called sweet grass. But I love what you say too about it's not the sweet grass, it's the people that Correct. turn it into something that brings it into the culture. It's not only sweet grass, you use some other materials as well. Another similar material, maybe actually more similar than just sweet grass, would have been found here on the coast of Carolina. It's called bulrush. And bulrush is a, is a substance that that more grows around the marsh is actually a tidal material touching high tide and low tide. Sweetgrass is gonna be a little further back from the, from the high tide, low tide. Uh, but bulrush is actually the biblical grass that baby Moses is found in. Mm. Uh, spoke of baby Moses being put into the basket and pushed up the Nile River, being mm. found on the other end by the Philistines. Um, that story, you know, that's biblical, you know what I mean? And so. And so we, we can talk about the materials that's being used, but that's a very old substance that was been, been used for generations before enslaved Africans were, were forced into America. But how does the palmetto tree play into the sweetgrass baskets? After all, South Carolina is the palmetto tree state. Corey tells us a little bit about that. So the, one of the main materials that we use will be the palmetto tree used for threading. The thread that holds all the baskets together is, is another biblical material connecting back to Palm Sunday. As 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 we uh, people that follow the Christian faith, we, we celebrate Palm Sunday yearly. Uh, but some of us don't know why. But the reason why is because that was a form of red carpet treatment as Christ came into the city of Jerusalem. Um, another material that we use uh, that was found here on, on the coast was would have been a longleaf pine needle. Longleaf pine needle been something that was used. Uh, by Native Americans, uh, longleaf pine needle. Uh, people today still make longleaf pine needle uh, baskets. Does not have anything to do with heritage. Um, does not have anything to do with heritage at all as far as our culture. It's just, we use it for coloring. Mm. And then, uh, so at all four of those materials total would make up a basket. So you have the pine needle, sweetgrass, palm fronds, and bulrush. All four of those collectively is what we use to make up uh, a sweetgrass basket. Sweetgrass baskets today are collected and purchased because of their beauty and their uniqueness and the skill and craftsmanship of weaving the baskets. But there was a time when sweetgrass baskets were used totally for work. The enslaved workers used the basket during harvest time to collect the produce and collect the harvest from the fields. The baskets were also used when the vendors went to town to the market 
They use the baskets to carry their produce and sell it at the marketplace. Corey shares with us which particular grass was used to make the baskets strong enough to withstand all of the work required of the enslaved laborers. Yes, and so bulrush made it more of a sturdier piece, a stronger basket. Um, the instructor were the men that showed the boys how to keep this skill set alive. And, and, and most of those baskets, the fanning baskets, or also known as the winnowing baskets, made of almost all bulrush. Mm-hmm. And it's because it made it such a stronger piece. Um, sweetgrass was, was brought in more uh, uh, around the same time. It just, it just was used for more of a smaller basket, bread basket, fruit bowls, uh, harvesting style baskets. And so the materials, you know, they have a very similar um, time as far as, you know, era. It's just used for different materials for different jobs that the baskets are used for. As traditions and legacies go, it's always within the family where things are passed down. The traditions from one generation to the next, from mother to child, from father to child, to continue on the traditions for a lifetime. Corey talks about his family involvement and how he learned to make sweetgrass baskets, how he learned to weave. This is an interesting story because it's not quite what you would expect. Yeah, well, uh, I give I give all the credit as far as um, my my weaving abilities to where I'm at today. I give all the credit to my in-laws. And so you actually have to know me to even know this story that I'm about to tell. Um, I wasn't born in as a basket weaver. I was uh, married in as a basket weaver. And so my wife, uh, my girlfriend at the time, Karen, uh, we, we started dating at, at a late teenage year, 17 and 18. Um, we're both from the same town. Mm-hmm. Being from the same town, we have very similar backgrounds. My, uh, her, her grandmother knew my father and, and her grandmother knew my grandfather. Uh, but, but that whole statement also goes back to traditions that the uh, freed Blacks, uh, the free Afro-Americans did after days of enslavement. And so one of the things that was done on my wife's side, we're now married, uh, um, 19 years. Um, so, so Karen's family were basket weavers by generationally keeping it alive, you know, generation after the next. Me growing up five, 10 minutes away from her community, my enslaved families uh, were doing other jobs as they were required as an enslaved African. Um, it was more like a, uh, an acceptance, a cosign. Um, I was saved by her grandmother. Her grandmother was the was the elder weaver. She was she was the one that had all the the the, the fame and the accolades. Uh, Mary Jane Manigault. Um, her 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 career put her into the Smithsonian and 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 so on and so forth. Long story short, her giving the approval that it was fine to be a weaver was was the way it had to been done uh, of that time. It's almost like. If she didn't approve it, it wouldn't happen. Um, so oh. she knew I was Dulla based on bloodline. She knew she knew my grandfather and and my father and so on and so forth. So she knew I was not an imposter of the culture. I was just a young boy that did not grow up making baskets. Mm-hmm. And so um, as her as Karen's mother and grandmother pretty much allowed it to happen, um, I moved in uh, and started working with my who I call my sister. She's actually my sister-in-law, Karen's sister. Um, started working with her in 2005 in the Charleston City Market. 
Uh, learning a lot from Carlene. I mean, down to, you know, uh, 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 different styles or, 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 or sales pitch or whatever. You know, I learned a lot from Carlene and I give her a lot of credit for it because, you know, she took the patience to make sure I was able to, to, to hold it down. And, and uh, we talking now, 21. So I've been, I've been working with Carlene right about 17 plus years, you know, daily that we don't put the in-law in there. Yeah. We just call ourselves brother and sister. Um, and it's so funny that, you know, I'm heavy set and Carlene is heavy set. People actually look alike. We don't look alike. <laughs> we just both, we just both overweight. You know what I mean? And so, and so they say, oh yeah, you, y'all, y'all look alike. And, then, and we look at the people like, yeah, whatever, you know, you, we're not, we're not even family, but you know, we, we get it. And uh, and our personalities are very similar. Carlene um, yeah. is, is a very uh, outgoing, bubbly personality. My personality just matches her so well mm-hmm. that really people think we are brother and sister, you know. Um, but but we're actually brother and sister-in-law. And Karen, still a weaver. Everyone is a weaver. And so my daughters, they're 14 and 19. Mm-hmm. They're 14 and 19 now. They are the sixth generation by bloodline. And so they are, they are, um, they are by bloodline on their mother's side, the sixth generation weaver. Now, do you all have any baskets in your family that dates back to any of your enslaved uh, ancestors? So uh, Karen's aunt um, has a basket as a rice fanning basket, um, dates back, give or take 115 to 120 years. Um, it would have been my mother-in-law's grandmother's basket. And so, um, and so my, my, my grandmother-in-law, Mary Jane Manigo, she wove baskets to be 98. The basket that they had that's now passed on from family to family uh, would be right about 115, 120 years old. Um, and it would have been Karen's, my wife, it would have been her great grandmother's piece that was made, yeah. And is that one made out of the bulrush? All bulrush, yeah. all bulrush and split oak. And split oak, yeah. wow. Yeah, and so split oak would have been the, the material that was used before the palmetto was used. And so palmetto, just a little more plentiful, a little easier to use, a little easier to apply, uh, to stretch and bend. And so the split oak became more not, you know, obsolete. And then the palmetto became more of a, uh, uh, that way of holding it together. Now we're not the palmetto state because of sweetgrass baskets. And so uh, don't, don't want to make that misconception. We, we're the Palmetto State that dates back to days of Confederacy. Fort Moultrie being built with the Palmettos. And, and correct, was, correct. Uh, that's an amazing story in itself. Okay, let's talk a little bit though, uh, Corey, because at one point, um, you you mentioned as well, but at one point the baskets were made by men, and uh, then women started to become more of the basket makers. So what what happened with that shift from men making them to women? So it was more of a um, more of a keeping alive. Uh, you know, when I'm doing gullah presentations, I've always worded it that the ladies are credited for keeping in this art alive for over 300 plus years. Women have been teaching from mother to daughter, from mother to daughter, granddaughter for, for, for hundreds of years as has been kept alive. As that enslaved man, he was more forced for 
for more of a labor intense job. He was the blacksmith. He was the fisherman. He was the carpenter. He was uh, putting horseshoes on horses. But as he was doing more of a uh, extreme labor, uh, the ladies stayed more closer to the home, made this, the made baskets that would, would use for the home, the rice fanning baskets or, or, uh, or harvesting baskets or bread baskets. And so the ladies uh, have definitely kept that style alive, that art alive um, from, from the enslaved African no longer being that weaver. Uh, prior to being enslaved, as this man was on the West Coast of Africa, he made the baskets more on the West Coast as he was a free man. He made the basket, he made a strong piece. He didn't have to make it so often because he had very strong hands. Um, those roles just changed, you know, and as the roles changed, uh, everyone was able to adapt and move forward and keep it moving. Men have always been a part of the skill be by being uh, harvesters, gathering materials for the ladies, or or some men have always been weavers, but it's just really want to make making sure that it's clear that the women the women are are, in, are credited for keeping this skill alive from from mother to daughter, dating over three hundred plus years here in the states. Slowly, mm -hmm. as men are getting back into it. Uh, as once again, freed men, like, like they were freed on the West Coast of Africa, allowed to choose his or her uh, uh, career path, mm -hmm. if you would. And so m like myself, every day I've been working on a piece for the past 19 years, you know, and so that's just a part of my everyday lifestyle. Um, there's about, I can, I can probably pop uh, eight to 10 men that I know that are, that are constant weavers, you know, now, if I only can say eight to 10 men, there would then be uh, the hundred women that are basket <laughs> weavers. And so women are still the majority uh, weavers as far as, you know, you may have heard the story of the ladies on the side of the road selling sweetgrass baskets or the ladies in the Charleston City Market or the ladies on Broad Street selling sweetgrass mm -hmm. baskets. And so that's what's, that's what's a custom. Most people are used to seeing ladies do it. Uh, Guys that are doing it, they, they're they're far in between. There's not many of us, um, but but uh, but but we all apart. They let us in. That's why I like to say that they let us in. Yeah, definitely. And 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 I like to think of it just as completely part of the culture where, you know, it's not limited to to you know to who can make them. And speaking of which, what about your daughters? Both of them have started weaving around the age of seven, six or seven years old. Um, both of them have made baskets. Mm -hmm. uh, my youngest daughter, she's 14 now. She's, uh, she's in ninth grade. Corinne, my 14-year-old, she's a sixth-generation weaver. She wove that piece. And so when she completed it, her mindset was to more take it to sell it at the Charleston City Market. And I said, well, since this is your first one, I'm going to buy it. And I added it to my own personal collection. And so... Um, both girls know how to do it, but Corinne's piece, I was able to keep her first one and put it up on my cabinet display. And then my oldest daughter, uh, Yasmin, Yasmin made a couple pieces as well. And I have them into my personal collection of, uh, that's in my, in my curio. It's, I actually collect them as well. I think I own about 63 sweetgrass baskets. Mm. Now tell me what what do what do sweetgrass makers like to be called artists or basket weavers or do you all have a preference for how you are are, are are named or titled? So I think our title would be called sweetgrass weavers. 
Um, it's so weird. That's a great question. It's so weird because we are weavers um, as a uh, action verb, a action, uh, uh, the, the action of weaving is what we do. And so we are called weavers. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the process of doing it, it's called sewing a basket. Yeah. And so we are weavers that sew baskets. So, so, the, so the job title is I'm a basket weaver. That's my job title. Mm-hmm. I'm a gullah sweetgrass basket weaver. In the process of doing it, I'm sewing a basket. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, now what I've learned from Karen's grandmother before she passed, uh, uh, the late Mary Jane Manigault, she worded it as far as the skill set has changed. So she says, because um, we used to sit on the porch, me and Carlene would sit on the porch with her and make baskets. And, and so she would use a term one time. I never forgotten it. She says, when she was a little girl, up until she died, what she did was called a skill. Oh. She says there was a skill to make baskets. Mm-hmm. And that's what she called it. She says her daughter, Karen's mother, my mother-in-law, what she did now and what she's done as, as a younger person, she's been weaving over 60-something years now, what she's doing is called a craft. Yeah. And so she says, Corey and Carlene, what you are doing today is called an art. And so the way she differentiated, the way she de- defined it, I understand it very well because as those generations were keeping this skill alive, this art alive, it turned in from the, the agricultural yeah. concept to more of the beauty of. Mm-hmm. And so I totally understand her sentence uh, as far as her bringing that to my understanding, but it's a skill, craft, now it's an art. We are artisans that make sweet grass baskets. Mm-hmm. Well, they're so beautiful. I mean, they definitely are pieces of artwork uh, to be admired and to be, you know, treasured and, and put in places where you can't see them and enjoy them like you would artwork. And talking about making um, the baskets or weaving the baskets, what tools are used to make the baskets? So we use one tool that's a flattened spoon handle. Um, prior to the tool that we're using today, the enslaved and the freed Africans, uh, before enslavement, they used the bone of a cow. Um, so they sharpen that bone down. Uh, so after using that bone of a cow, then the enslaved, uh, around that time of enslavement, started using more metal. So they're using more of a flattened nail head. That flattened nail head was used for the same purpose uh, that the bone was used for. Uh, so you use it for sticking a hole in the material. Now today, uh, all weavers use a spoon or a fork handle. We cut the eating part off, file it down, and it's called a nail bone. So all basket weavers use a nail bone from the two tools that was used prior to what we're using. That was the nail, then the bone. Our silver spoon, our silverware is called a nail bone. Um, so the tools that we use today will be a nail bone and a pair of scissors. Everything will be based on the skill set of the artist. And it definitely is. That's, that's once again, I lean it back on not necessarily the material. It's not really the material. It's the skill set of the people, mm. you know, as far as what they can bend that material to do and look like and and make it so tight that some of the, some of the weavers can make it hold water, you know, uh, by, by making that basket so tight. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, if the baskets can actually hold water. So some of them can. Some artisans can, yes. Some artisans have a stitch just that tight that it can hold water. Does the basket getting wet, does that affect it or not? It helps it. Um, so that's something that we recommend doing uh, once or twice a year, just wiping it down or misting it down with a spray bottle. Um, not a daily. You don't want to get it wet every day. Um, so you don't want to make it into a flower pot holder. You don't want to put a flower pot in it, you know, because that, that continuous watering without it drying will rotten out the bottom. But if you had it as a bread basket and you rinsed it off uh, twice a year, that'd be perfectly fine. If they're up on the wall and they've been mounted or, or they're far, you know, they're up kind of high like mine are, then you can always take a spray bottle to them. Um, what you're doing, you're only high, you're, you're, you're hydrating the palmetto. Uh, the bulrush does not need watering. The sweet grass does not need moisture added to it or the pine needle does not as, as well. All you're really doing is adding a little moisture back to the palmetto so it doesn't get dry or brittle, starts to crack and frail. Where do you sell your baskets? So I'm, I'm known to be found in the Charleston City Market. I'm up on the Meeting Street side, right below the Daughters of Confederate Museum, or now known as the Charleston Market Museum. I think they just changed the name to the Charleston Market Museum. Um, and so I'm right below there. Do you sell some of your baskets online? Uh, yes. Um, so I use social medias. And so Instagram or Facebook. And so the way I have it set up is not an online presence um, because it's kind of hard keeping up with making 10 or 15 of the same style and having them on, you know, ready to ship out. You know, we don't do it that way. So what I tend to do, uh, my own little business model is with social medias, everybody uses them. If a person I have in my message, like right under my name, inbox me and I can send you what's available for shipping. And so I could have an inventory of any given day of 40 to 60 baskets. Um, I can ship out what's available that day instead of a person just waiting and try to order something. Um, the orders, you know, there's people already have orders in, but as we do baskets daily, we make stuff for orders and we also make stuff on the table. And so I allow uh, my follow base to shop with me by requesting photos of what can be shipped out. Well, I'd like to talk a little bit about history a, a bit too, Corey, uh, because I've read that Mount Pleasant and Highway 17 has a very strong historical connection to sweetgrass baskets becoming known. So the sweetgrass basket stands, a lot of people call them little shacks or little shanties or you know, I, I've heard them being, you know, as people try to reference them in, in plenty of different ways. Um, they'll be, for those that's never been up and down Highway 17 in the Charleston County area, there's every bit of 40 to 70 different little stands along the highway of 17 North. Um, the Sweetgrass Basket stands are in the Mount Pleasant area they are considered more like a historical significance as uh, those stands were some of the first businesses of our town dating back to, to the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Um, those, those, those ladies will, would sit their stands out or 
sit the bastards out on the stand, knowing that that was the route from Maine down to Miami. And so before I-95 was built in the, in the 60s, for you to get to Florida from New York, you would have to come down Route 17, uh, 17 South, and you would pass this town that everyone knows about seeing that little town with basket stands along the highway. And that town is called Mount Pleasant. And so um, all, all the weavers you'll ever meet, they have some strong connection to that town of Mount Pleasant. Uh, even if they don't live there anymore, their grandmother lived there or they, they learned a skill from an aunt that lived there. Uh, but but mostly every basket weaver of the Gullah descent that makes baskets are from that area uh, some way, somehow. Not saying that they never made baskets along the Sea Islands. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that Mount Pleasant is known to keep it alive the longest by a mass community. Um, right. They are sweetgrass baskets that are found along Sapelo Island that um, they are they are some weavers that are in Hilton Head, South Carolina. They have very strong connections from Mount Pleasant, grew up in Mount Pleasant. Um, the Sapelo Island area folks, uh, they're they're learning their skill set from their ancestry, mm-hmm. uh, mostly within their area. But as far as a large majority of the heritage uh, would have been kept alive in Mount Pleasant. What 17 is to the Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor. Um, And so that term was actually a term that was put into play and recognized around 2006 um, Mm -hmm. as as analysts came in and, and researchers came in and researched our area, noticing that we are a similar people to a the Fusky Island or or a, a person from Edisto or or a person up from Georgetown, South Carolina, or a person from Wilmington, North Carolina, or a person from Jacksonville, Florida. Collectively, those four states, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina, that coastal community of one county inland from the ocean makes up the Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor. And within that Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor, our trades, traditions, and techniques has been kept alive for over that 300 plus years because of that time of slave trade. And so that's something that I always like to make sure is understood that the Gullah people are not one town. Gullah people are not one state. Um, we, are, we are made up of four states, and, and that's, from the, that's from the top of Florida. That's around the Jacksonville I've heard people say go as low as St. Augustine. Yeah. But the top of Jacksonville, St. Augustine, all the way up to the Jacksonville, North Carolina or Wilmington, North Carolina area is where you have the Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor. And, and we're very proud. We're very proud to, to state that, mm-hmm. that, 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 that corridor, that major artery that runs through that corridor is Highway 17. Mm-hmm. Highway 17 it was, is what connects all of us. Um, and, and so as we, as we have different parts of the culture, different parts of our heritage being kept alive in different areas, we have, uh, you know, you have clam raking, you know, around Brunswick or, 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 or uh, 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 Jekyll Island. You have, you, have, you have hammock making, cast net making up around Pauly's Island. You have, mm-hmm. you know, you have uh, sweetgrass basket weaving 
right in Mount Pleasant. You know, uh, we have the, the 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 dialect, the strong Gullah Geechee dialect will be found more around the Hilton Head, all the way up towards the Charleston area. You have some of the major dishes around Savannah and Buford. I mean, collectively, we're one people, but we're in different little nooks and crannies that makes us up one uh, of one culture. Yeah. I love that, Corey. Thank you so much. I, and it's so important to keep that connection with, with ourselves as well. Correct, correct. Mm-hmm. Not only just making sure that people understand that outside of the culture or, or other races of people, but within our own race, we need to make sure that we remember and keep that connection between us all. That, that's how we stay strong. Yeah, but that connection is also gives us pride. Um, and, and the reason why I can say the pride is because being a Charlestonian, we've been known to sound different as we speak. Um, prior to 2006, you know, it, it was almost like a, it was almost like a, uh, a form of embarrassment to, to, to sound Geechee. It was a form of embarrassment to sound Gullah, you know, to, to have our native tongue and not realize that it was a native tongue until now today we know what it is we're proud to be what it is today but at one time we didn't we didn't we didn't embrace it that way uh 30 years ago uh 40 years ago that that was more of a, a, a upper state carolinian saying that those coastal people oh yeah they sound funny down there oh they geechee down there or they right. or they you know so on and so forth so that was a form of embarrassment and so it took the researching and the studies and the drawing together of communities that would help us to be proud of who we are because we're not just the average black folk we're 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 folk that's dating back to days of enslavement with with strong connections to the sierra leone angola ivory coast uh uh, senegal uh we have we have some of the strongest connections to the to the uh to those places because of our heritage and our heritage also brings in our language and our language also brings in our skill set crafts techniques and traditions that we needed the researchers to help us generationally to understand why we do sound this way why we do traditions that are only based on full moons or 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 high tides or or you know there's so much stuff that we do within the culture that's based off of living on the earth that we didn't really understand that was that was tradition or, or heritage it was just a way of life and yeah. when you have just a way of life and then you collectively bring all these communities in together that did these similar traditions and techniques that dates back to before days of enslavement it just really gives us a, a firm foundation of who we are as a people um as you as you hear of a person from chicago no no heritage other than being black in america you know you, you're just black you know what i mean and so a person from the coast of carolina they're gullah and so they're right. gullah because they have a very close connection to the west coast of africa as those enslaves were brought into america that's that's what makes us proud it wasn't just by chance that the enslaved africans that were brought over to the u.s were chosen just by chance they were chosen because of the skills that they had, the knowledge that they had, and those would be able to be transferred over to crops, especially those crops that would become commercial here in what would be called, I guess, the New World, uh, the colonies, 
and the plantations at the yes, time. Yes, yes, they are. So that was actually a separate voyage that those Europeans took as they realized that um, the soils weren't always the same in, 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 in the whole state. And so for those people that, you know, may have glanced over the time of enslavement and, and, and didn't really get really into it with the history, you automatically think cotton, you know, you yeah. automatically soybean, you know, you think those as the crops. Um, and so when you really get into our culture and our history and, and our state and realize that our state is built off of different elevations, those crops were not the same all the way around. And so when you have different elevations, you also have different types of crops that can grow in that elevation. Um, so with that being said, we're not known for uh, uh, cotton down here on the coast. Mm. Um, we're not really known for tobacco down on the coast. Um, we're, we're more known for indigo and raw rice. And so as those Europeans were enslaving Africans, also looking at their type of elevation that they were in, being here on the coast, not going all the way up towards the Spartanburg area of the early 17, uh, 16, 1700s, they more stayed around to the coast because that was where they was just coming into the area. So what was going to help fuel their economy of that time would not have been the average crops that, that, that you know, maybe Virginia may have had or or, or you know, some parts of Alabama may have had. So they had to find something that would grow here on the coast of Carolina. So they seeked out the Africans, uh, what we call the Rice Coast. Mm -hmm. The Rice Coast is the West Coast of Africa. They was harvesting, growing, cleaning, and drying raw rices on the coast of Africa for hundreds and hundreds of years before any, uh, uh, any European wanted to come to America. And so as they seeked out that skill set, enslaved those Africans, made them come back. Mm -hmm. Once they made them come back, because we're here in the lowlands, we're in the low country. And so that's what made Charleston one of the richest cities of America, yeah. was off the back of enslaved Africans, the back off of enslaved Africans growing, cleaning, drying, and trading raw rice. Yeah. Uh, so that rice is a form of currency. That rice is better known as Carolina gold because you'd use it and for a trading and bartering. You know, so if you had a cow, you know, I needed your cow. I didn't give you money. I gave you so many pounds of rice. Um, that rice then went on to trade with uh, with Barbadians and, and, and people from Haiti. And that rice was such a, mu a major contribution to, to the what they call the New World. Um, and, and it's because it was it was needed. You had to eat. You also, you know, and so if you was able to feed yourself, feed your families and have a couple of uh, extra pounds trading and watering. That was the number one cash crop in the South. Yeah, I always like to say that if cotton was king, rice would certainly go. Yeah, rice was go. Rice, rice was go. Definitely go. And uh, so much, I, I'm, I'm sure I can just imagine when they saw that they were able to make it a crop over here in the New World, it just expanded. Like in Louisiana with the, with the sugar cane, I had a chance to, uh, to go there a couple of years and see some of the plantations where the enslaved grew the, the sugar cane. And I thought I was just gonna see, you know, one plantation here, another plantation five or six miles down the road. But that sugar cane started making so much money that it was lined up like a subdivision. You know, it was like plantation after plantation after plantation. I'm sure it was the same thing with rice that once they saw the commercial value of it and how easy it would be for them to get enslaved Africans and bring them over that already knew the skill it was just like, I mean, they were, they were set to go. <laughs> yeah, they were ready to do it. Ready they were to do ready it. to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
so we talked about the different baskets, but the fanner basket is the one that was used for rice. Correct. Mm-hmm. So that. So, that, but, but there, was, there was a process, you know, there was a process way before that, Anita, that, that most of us don't discuss unless you're, you know, you're well in, well, in, well into the history of the Gullah culture. After that rice is dried and, and, and harvested off of the off of the little plants, then you had to beat it. You had to beat it in a burnt wooden pestle. You know, most people don't even think about that that process that was way before fanning rice. And so that burnt wooden pestle, you burn a log, and then you use like a life-size, almost a four-foot-long Q-tip is what it looks like. And so you take that Q-tip and you beat the rice in that log, and you want to get one or two breaks on the rice. And once you got the one or two breaks, then you dumped it into the fanning basket and let the shaft or the husk blow away. But that breaking process is a lot of uh, that we just tend to forget about. That was definitely something that was needed. And that was also too, not something easy. I mean, it wasn't just like put it there and you know, pound, 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 and you got it done. It was a lot of work in that part of it as well. You also need uh, you also need a day with a little breeze as well. And so if you didn't have a little breeze, then that shaft did not blow as well. Yeah, exactly. So there exactly. was, was a lot being done and a lot of skill set in that as well. What do you think about how basket making has shaped or and defined the Gullah culture? I would say it definitely has helped us, um, you know, as the research was done to, to figure out, you know, what cities, what, what areas, what states, what borders, what boundaries makes up the Gullah Geechee Heritage Corridor. I would say that that basket weaving was such a great, a great part of what made us who we are. Um, uh, you, you don't think of, you don't think of the culture. And so I like to word it that, 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 that we are a culture, you know, we are heritage. Um, and so within all cultures, you have, you have language, you have religion, you have foods, you have ways of harvesting, growing, collecting. You also have music, you have arts, you know, you have, you know, you have all these things, language, you have all these things that make up a culture. And so the sweetgrass weaving would have been the art of the culture. Um, and so if, if you, don't, you don't have, you don't have um, any culture without having an art form. And so the art form of our culture would be basket weaving. Um, I think to answer your question, sweetgrass basket weaving just puts that one little extra touch yeah. into that pot uh, that makes us one people. You know, one, one little extra touch that makes us a true culture. You know, you can't have half of it and call yourself a culture. You got to have it all to be a culture. Mm-hmm. And so that, that art, the artistry that's been kept alive in, in Charleston County would definitely uh, make up that, that, missing, that missing part. How do you think African-Americans, just as a general, us as, as, as Black folks, are influenced by the rich culture of, of the Gullah culture there in South Carolina? Um, I, feel, I feel it's more a part of us, I should say it this way, it's more a part of them than they realize. Because I am Gullah, I practice Gullah lifestyle daily. I feel like a non-coastal uh, person also has Gullah 
practices that he and she may not even realize, you know, um, uh, even within our, our, our dialogue, our, our conversation, just the words that we use are gullah words. And we have no idea these are gullah words. It's just a, a word we've used. Um, uh, there's word, there's, there's spices, okra, tomatoes. I mean, uh, making that into one dish, that's a gullah right. dish. So, uh, uh, soul food, soul food is something that a lot of people haven't really thought about. And so I like to break it down that soul food is gullah food. Mm. Gullah food is slave food. Mm. And, when, and the reason why I say it that way is because slave food was food that was, was parts of the animal or 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 parts of uh, 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 parts of what you know whatever that the, the whites did not want those those were left for the Africans to eat you know and they made it they made it to the best of their ability they took that tripe that chitlin that hog maw that fat back you wow. know that that pig foot you know they made it into a dish as dynamite now look who wants to come and get it you yes. know they, they want they want that they want that that, that chicken gizzard where well, at one time whites would not eat a chicken gizzard you know what I mean. Now you go to any country corner store, you get fried liver, fried gizzard, you know, you get you get some lima bean and rice, mm. uh, fat back on the side. But those were dishes that that, that the uh, that the Africans used because that's what they had. Now, so that African food turned into soul food. That soul food is gullah food, and so you come down here to the coast wanting something that's really authentic to us. It's, it's just the same thing. You, you can go to any mom and pop restaurant, get baked macaroni, lima beans and rice, fried chicken, and a, and a side of cornbread. That's, that's, that's soul food in so many people's mindset. That's gullah food in my mindset. That, you know, that's slave food in, in, in yesterday's mindset. And so now one thing I can say about our, our gullah dishes is we have a lot of seafood that's in it. And that's because seafood is an, a major staple. It's right. not a delicacy to us because... We live on the coast. It was very plentiful. Um, you had a tractor. You, you know, your tractor was a cow. You did not eat that one cow that was in your yard. You need that cow for milk, and you need that cow for plowing the fields. And so your your filet mignon of the of the 1600s, 1700s, 18 and 1900s, you did not eat that cow. You eat that cow, and then you're gonna figure out how to plow that field. You know, or you you go kill that goat because you want some. You know, some some. Uh, some curry goat or, or whatever, however you want to prepare your goat, you're no longer going to have that milk. You know, so there was there was meats that were not eaten because we needed those animals for other other parts of lifestyle, you know. And so casting a shrimp net and, and getting uh, 10 pounds of shrimp, feeding a family off of something like that or fishing and or, or, or harvesting, uh, raking for clams or harvesting oysters. That's just uh, the way of life. But but, uh, but yeah, so so our, our dishes are a major part of our heritage. Uh, and, and those people that don't live on the coast, they enjoy so much of our heritage, not realizing where it came from. Where, where, exactly. where, where, what part of American is that? You know, and so, uh, yeah, they, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be America without the Gullah heritage. Oh, so, so much. I mean, that's a whole nother thing we could get on is talking about the food influence that has come over from, from Africa. You know, this part, this just part of the American food culture now. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Corey, how can people get in touch with you and also purchase some of your beautiful baskets? Yeah, so 
Um, I'm using all social media platforms, the, at least the busy ones. And so that'd be uh, Corey Alston Gulla Sweetgrass Baskets on Facebook. Um, and on Instagram, it is Corey underscore Alston underscore Sweetgrass. Um, and my phone number is public. Um, and so if anyone want to communicate with me, they can inbox me. Um, or you can shoot me a text at 843-442-1855. Corey, I would really love to thank you for the time that you've spent with me, sharing your knowledge, and just sharing the culture with all of us, all of the listeners. So thank you so much for that. And I'd like to ask you, what last words do you have to share with us? Listen, Nita, we are, we are very proud people. We're very proud to be a part of this heritage. And that's why I don't want people to mistake. Um, we're, 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 it's such a blessing to be where we're at today as a Gullah community, knowing that we're, we're off of the backs of our ancestry right. so that everything that they fought for, definitely not in, not in vain. As you can see, the Sweetgrass Baskets really do tell the story of a people. Strong like a woven sweetgrass basket, strong enough to withstand and to continue standing, to be held in the tight constraints of slavery, yet the people are strong enough to carry on. And the sweetgrass baskets are like a metaphor of a people woven between two places spanning an ocean, from West Africa all the way over to South Carolina. The skills and the baskets travel with the people in their hearts and in the skills in their hands, strong enough to carry a nation's burden and withstand the winds of time, showing their value and their individuality as something so beautiful should do. To plan a trip to Charleston, visit the website explorecharleston.com. And when visiting Charleston, make sure to visit some of the historic plantations where you can see where the enslaved Africans who were brought over with these skills to make baskets, where they worked and where they passed on the traditions from generation to generation. And you can still find those traditions in the basket weavers in the Charleston market and along Highway 17 in Mount Pleasant. To learn more about the U.S. Mint and their commemorative quarter programs, visit the website usmint.gov. And Quartermaster Travel would like to thank the following people. Corey Austin for sharing not only his story, but the story of his family and the history of the Gullah basket weavers. I'd also like to thank Doug Warner with Explore Charleston for introducing me to Corey. Now make sure that you click that subscribe button so that you'll be first in line for all of the upcoming episodes of Quarter Miles Travel and also information about the U.S. Mint's commemorative quarters. And as always, reach in your pocket or your sofa cushions and there you are sure to find a quarter waiting for you to explore. Flip it over and Quarter Miles Travel will take it from there. We'll help you turn that quarter into an adventure.